is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Week in Review. Monday's meeting of the Electoral College finally made official what 50% of the country already took for granted, that Joe Biden would be the 46th president of the United States. On Monday evening, Mitch McConnell took to the Senate floor to congratulate Biden and Kamala Harris on their victory. For five weeks, McConnell had declined to say that Biden defeated Trump, towing the party line that the president had the right to exhaust all legal remedies afforded to him. McConnell's recognition of Joe Biden as president-elect should have given his fellow senators and more reasonable lower house Republicans the necessary cover to acknowledge a Biden victory and finally put this whole fucking shameful affair to bed. President Trump refuses to concede, but top Republicans now congratulating Biden. I don't know if she's I think the race is over. Pennsylvania Republican Senator Pat Toomey uh, is telling the Philadelphia Inquirer, quote, the outcome of the election is clear, and that is that Joe Biden won the election. Senate Majority Whip. John Thune said of South Dakota said it's time for everybody to move on. The Electoral College has spoken. So today I want to congratulate President-elect Joe Biden. Overnight, Russian President Vladimir Putin finally acknowledging Biden's victory, congratulating him in a telegram, reportedly writing in part, I am ready for interaction and contacts with you. It seems, though, that not everyone was prepared to acknowledge reality. Just as the Electoral College was casting the first of its votes on the East Coast to certify Joe Biden as president-elect, creepy Stephen Miller made an appearance on Fox and Friends to announce that Trump's team planned to support an alternate set of electors in key states Biden won, and which Trump is continuing to baselessly dispute. The only date in the Constitution is January 20th. So we have more than enough time to right the wrong of this fraudulent election result and certify Donald Trump as the winner of the election. As we speak today, an alternate slate of electors in the contested states is going to vote and we're going to send those results up to Congress. This will ensure that all of our legal remedies remain open. That means that if we win these cases in the courts, that we can direct that the alternate slate of electors be certified. The state legislatures in Georgia, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania can do the same. And likewise, Congress has that opportunity as well to do the right thing. If you just cured three simple constitutional defects, Donald Trump's the winner of this election. The plan is a ludicrous and cynical plot by the Trump campaign to fool his base into believing that he still has a fucking chance to win the election, allowing Trump to continue to raise vast sums of money. Steve Bennon of MSNBC helpfully explained that Miller is pointing to a made-up political mechanism. There is nothing in the American electoral system that allows for both real electors and alternate electors that the defeated president likes better. One will arrive at Congress with states legal backing, the other will be utterly meaningless. If you are a MAGA diehard or a conspiratorially prone, your attention would turn to January 6, which is when Congress approves the electors. Largely a procedural move, It's taken on an obsessive focus by those who believe in Trump's ability to pull off the above coup. What these people are doing, Stephen Miller prime among them, is stirring up violence. They're the kind of violence that required special protection for the electors in the state of Michigan. They are inciting violence. They're engaged in essentially sabotage. 
Yes, January 20th is the date in the Constitution, but well beyond the 20th, these people are going to be out there, whether it's in Mar-a-Lago or somewhere else, encouraging the sort of armed rebellion uh, to kill people. And I think that's a scary thing, not just for democracy, but for the people who want to go on with their lives. But this is far out stuff which borders on QAnon level nuttiness. It's a ceremonial gesture with no teeth for which Trump will revel in the attention and use the moment as yet another loyalty test. It takes one member of the House and one senator to formally object and force votes in both chambers. Regardless of how many Republicans jump on board or are pressured to do so, it is doomed to fail. Democrats must also support the measure. McConnell, who has clearly had enough of Donald Trump and is now thinking about actually having to work with the Biden administration, is pleading for them to stand down. You'll get nothing and like it. Meanwhile, just a day later, there was yet another sad capitulation to the forces of MAGA-style conspiracy and Republican cowardice. Only this time, it played out on the Senate floor during a bizarre three-hour Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee hearing. I don't know what we're yelling about! Trump's senatorial sock puppet, Wisconsin's Ron Johnson, presided over a Giuliani-style shitshow trial complete with bogus witnesses and utterly meritless claims of widespread voter fraud during the 2020 election. Luckily, it quickly devolved into an entertaining and ugly shouting match between the two ranking committee members who accused one another of spreading disinformation going back to the 2016 election. In our election integrity, we, we're not going to be able to just move on without bringing up these irregularities, examining them, and providing an explanation and see where there really are problems so we can correct it moving forward. Senator Paul. Mr. Mr. Chairman, I got to respond to that. I mean, you're saying I'm putting out Try. information. Well, one, I did, had nothing to do with this report. You're you you lied repeatedly. I did not you lied this. repeatedly in the press that I was spreading Russian, dis, Russian disinformation, and that was an outright lie, and I told you to stop lying, and you continue to do it. Mr. Chairman, this is not about airing your grievances. I know what I don't know what rabbit hole you're running down. You right talked now. about you Russian disinformation. Down rabbit holes. Senator Paul. This is simply not what we're Senator dealing Paul. with. Well, Mr. Chairman, you can't make Judge these false Starr. allegations and then dropping it there. That is why this needs to return back Good to its star, Senator Paul. partisan things. This is, this, is, this is terrible what you're doing to this committee. Johnson, who was running for re-election in 2022, stated that the hearing was to simply evaluate information, whereas Peters countered that it was giving air to conspiracy theories and threatening U.S. democracy. And despite the title of today's hearing, there were no widespread election irregularities that affected the final outcome. These claims are false. And giving them more oxygen is a grave threat to the future of our democracy. The entire three hours was a sad and ridiculous farce with no particular purpose beyond appeasing the fucking president and showing that despite their recognition of Biden as president-elect, Republican senators were still committed to investigating these baseless claims. Democrats called former DHS election security head Chris Krebs as a witness, who then testified to the worsening climate of threats against election workers fueled by the false fraud claims and worried that they would have a chilling effect on future election cycles. So I think generally from a timing perspective, particularly with the seating of the Electoral College and 306 electoral votes for President-elect Biden, 
you know, I think we're past the point where we need to be having conversations about the outcome of this election. I think that continued assaults on democracy and the outcome of this election that only serves to undermine confidence in the process is ultimately, as, as you both have said, you know, ultimately corrosive to the institutions that support elections. And going forward, it will be that much harder. The, the trick about elections is that, you know, you're not so much trying to convince the winner they won. It's the loser that they lost. And you need willing participants on both sides. And In what must be the least surprising news of the week, the president accepted the resignation of Attorney General Bill Barr. Announcing his departure on Twitter just moments after the Electoral College put President-elect Joe Biden over the 270 votes needed to formally secure the presidency. It was a fitting end to a poisonous and destructive political relationship. Barr did more than erase 50 years of Justice Department independence from the executive branch than any figure since the abuses of the Nixon administration. Moments after the Electoral College made Mr. Biden's victory official, President Trump announced Attorney General William Barr resigned. Mr. Trump said Barr will leave his post next week after the pair met yesterday at the White House. Lately, President Trump has been upset that Barr said the Department of Justice found no evidence of widespread fraud in the 2020 election, a direct contradiction of the president's false claims. Barr has also admitted the president's interference of the Department of Justice made his job impossible. Like a wrecking ball, fucking Bill Barr leveled decades of safeguards in a matter of years, most of them in support of the president and his many crimes and trespasses against the Constitution. You always know you're in trouble when someone's talking about their belief in the expansive powers of the presidency. It's code word for, I just did a bunch of illegal shit, but you can't investigate me because I'm the fucking president and can do whatever I want. The newspapers report Bill Barr was giving Eisenhower for president speeches when he was in kindergarten. And his parents uh, passed along the word that young Bill was discoursing about separation of powers before he gave up his pacifier. Barr pulled Trump out of a host of messes from the Mueller report, impeachment, and did his bidding by interfering in scores of cases ranging from Michael Flynn and Roger Stone to Paul Manafort, who he co-signed a writ keeping the corrupt lobbyist and former Trump campaign manager from going to Rikers Island. These convicted felons, but Trump's Justice Department just interfered in convicted felon Paul Manafort's prison assignment, with Bill Barr's top deputy contacting New York authorities through a letter that may help shield Manafort from New York's notorious Rikers Island prison. The New York Times headline tells a story. Manafort seemed headed to Rikers, then the Justice Department intervened. Let's us also not forget that this man is responsible for sending me back to fucking prison and being placed in solitary confinement for my refusal to sign away my First Amendment rights. Needless for me to say, the man was a stooge, a henchman and bagman. Trump is always looking for his next Roy Cohn, the one person he could depend on to keep him out of the shit. I played that role for 10 fucking years until I went to prison and then I saw the light. The left wants power because that is essentially their state of grace and their, their secular religion. They want to run people's lives so they can design utopia for all of us. And that's what, you know, that's what turns them on. In Bill Barr, Trump found what he thought to be his ultimate protector. The attorney general echoed the president's anger at coronavirus lockdowns, calling them, apart from slavery, the greatest intrusion on civil liberties in American history. 
Barr also asked for the Justice Department to take over the president's defense in a defamation lawsuit filed against him by Jean E. Carroll, who accused him of sexual assault. And it was Barr who agreed to clear out the peaceful protesters around St. John's Church with rubber bullets and tear gas and then walk his fat ass in the president before cameras and denounce that same violence. Police forcibly removing demonstrators Monday to clear a path for President Trump to walk to St. John's Church, damaged by arson for a photo op that sparked outrage. The AG was there too, and the Trump administration says he gave the order to increase the secure perimeter around the White House. But now Barr says it was not his call to use aggressive measures. I'm not involved in giving tactical commands like that, he told the Associated Press, adding his attitude was get it done, but he didn't say go do it. We have evidence that Antifa and other similar extremist groups, as well as actors of a variety of different political uh, persuasions, have been involved in instigating and participating in the violent activity. All of this is to say that I find it curious why Bill Barr would then refuse to go along with the president on election fraud after being more than willing to weaponize the Justice Department for the president on literally half a dozen other occasions. Barr isn't a particularly moral person, so the notion that he decided to finally become one by denying Trump the use of the Justice Department to help overturn this election is entirely laughable. Barr took a stand because he was done and he saw that Trump was also done. Something spooked him and suggests that Barr thinks what happens in the next five weeks could irretrievably tarnish his legacy. If so, that's pretty stunning, considering how much Barr has already diminished his reputation and that of the Justice Department with his pro-Trump whoring. When you um, see some of the criticism, and you've gotten quite a bit of it, uh, that you're protecting the president, that you're enabling the president, What's your response to that? Well, uh, I th we live in a hyper-partisan age where people no longer really pay attention to the substance of what's said, but as to who says it and what side they're on and what its political ramifications are. Uh, the Department of Justice is all about the law and the facts and the substance, and I'm going to make the decisions based on the law and the facts, and I realize that's in tension with the political climate we live in because people are more interested in getting their way politically. Uh, so I think it just goes with the territory of being attorney general in a hyperpartisan period of time. Some believe that Barr was aghast at the prospect of a pardon fiasco with Trump selling prison commutations to the highest bidder and shamelessly using the office of the AG to rubber stamp his own self-pardon and that of his children. Trump is preparing to escalate his war against those he believed crossed him and use any means necessary to exact revenge or gain the upper hand. That Barr would not want to be involved is a possibility as well. But please do not confuse Barr's resignation for some type of deathbed conversion and rehabilitation. He should get no congratulations for refusing to back a coup. He should leave the sad and disgraced man that he is. That he wrote Trump a fawning and obsequious resignation letter speaks volumes about Bill Barr. His legacy will forever be stained with Trump's abuses of power. When you're in office, you gotta do a lot of things sometimes that are not always, in the strictest sense of the law, legal. But you do them because they're in the greater interests of the nation. Right, wait, just so I understand correctly. Are you really saying that in certain situations, the president can decide whether it's in the best interests of the nation and then 
do something illegal. I'm saying that when the president does it, that means it's not illegal. Barr did leave one final flaming bag of shit on the Biden's doorstep, though, with his appointment of John Durham to special counsel. He created the precedent and blueprint for Trump to pressure acting AG Jeffrey Rosen into appointing a special counsel of his own to investigate both Hunter Biden and claims of election fraud in these waning days. But if he's taking over the Justice Department for just the last month of the Trump administration, it's worth thinking about the kinds of things that Trump might want to do in that last month. It's worth remembering the role that Rosen had in trying to make that alleged criminal behavior by President Trump not only disappear, but disappear in a way that would submarine those allegations and prevent anybody else from looking at them. It's a prospect that terrifies Democrats that a special counsel, which wouldn't be able to be easily dismissed by Biden's attorney general without possible backlash and political consequence, will serve primarily to burden and damage the new administration while also serving as a payback for Democratic support of the FBI's investigation into Trump's ties to Russia during the 2016 presidential campaign. Thus, it's a terrifying probability that in these final weeks, the chaos of this election may actually intensify as Trump comes closer to the end and may even serve to embolden his most extreme supporters. If last weekend's Million MAGA march was any measure, it's becoming increasingly violent in MAGA country. Attention, I am Officer Ratcliffe, a police officer with the Sacramento Police Department. I hereby declare this to be an unlawful assembly and in the name of the people of the state of California, order all those assembled at Cesar Chavez Plaza Park to disperse immediately. Those who remain may be arrested. Disperse by walking on the USA! sidewalk, either east USA! or west USA! on I Street, away USA! from officers. And now for the main event. My next guest, Alyssa Milano, is the host of the Sorry Not Sorry podcast. The 47-year-old actress, activist, and podcaster first captured the nation's attention with her role on the 1980s sitcom, Who's the Boss? And then later on the massively popular Charmed. More recently, Milano is best known for her woke social activism and her outspokenness online regarding humanitarian and progressive causes. Not simply another Hollywood keyboard warrior, Milano was one of the key figures in propelling the Me Too movement to prominence within Hollywood and today maintains a massive audience and influence on Twitter for which she advances a host of progressive issues. Milano has been a vocal presence throughout the election and its toxic aftermath and has raised both awareness and money for Democrats running in the 2021 Georgia Senate special election. And let's listen now to that conversation. This morning, President Donald Trump tweeted, Now that the Biden administration will be a scandal, plagued mess for years to come, it's much easier for the Supreme Court of the United States to follow the Constitution and do what everybody knows has to be done. They must show great courage and wisdom, right? Save the USA. Does this amount to a concession on the part of the president? Because I'm pretty certain it's the first time that he's acknowledged Biden in this context. Perhaps with the Electoral College meeting on Monday, that this will be the first step in Trump's pivot to a 2024 campaign strategy. What's your thoughts? 
I mean, who knows what, you, I mean, you would know better, better than I would. I mean, his, the way in which his mind works. Um, the one thing I do know for sure is that there is a lot of projection that goes on when he's guilty of something. And so, I mean, that's, it seemed this time he's called uh, president elect Biden, the, uh, the Biden administration. So yeah, let's, let's call it a concession speech, please. For the love of God. Let that be his concession speech. You know, I'm I'm kind of of the belief that I understand what Trump's game plan is right now. By having the Texas attorney general file the action that he did, I truly believe that what he's looking to do is to have the Supreme Court make a determination that they don't have the ability or the jurisdiction within which to answer the complaint or to resolve the complaint and rather remand it back to the Senate. And if they do that, the danger there is, of course, the Senate being Republican controlled would then end up controlling the electoral votes based upon the number of states, right, that will vote for Trump, thereby Trump being able to keep the presidency. I mean, talk about stealing an election from the American people. That's what I believe he's up to. You know, it's it's very, very likely that um, every step of the way, the things that we have felt that he has been up to, like when he was telling everybody that, you know, the mail-in ballots were going to be rigged, um, and then he slowed down the Postal Service, and all of these things, I think, have been um, getting all of his uh, ducks in a row, trying all of his options to uh, ensure the 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 idea of him getting another four years. Now, that does not answer the horrendous actions of the GOP during this time to continue to uh, blindly follow what this man says when, uh, you know, the the will of the people could potentially be overturned in whatever capacity. Um, and I just don't, I don't understand, I don't understand where are all of the adults in the room. You know, there are far too few members of the Republican Party that have st- stood up and said, you know what, this is not right. And uh, Biden has won. And it's time because what is happening right now is so horrible for this country. And it will only cause more divide, which, you know, I think Trump kind of gets off on anyway. Well, as I always refer to him as Captain Chaos. I mean, he does truly love to sow chaos. He thinks he's like Julius Caesar, right? With the um, with the games going on, and he's making determinations, thumbs up or thumbs down. But yesterday, in response to the desperate attempt by the Texas Attorney General in petitioning the Supreme Court to sue the states of Georgia, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania to overturn the election results, you actually retweeted the following from Jeb Bush. This is crazy. It will be killed on arrival. Why are smart people advancing this notion? Let it go. The election is over. Obviously, I want to get into this a bit. But first, I'm curious if you found yourself marveling at the strange bedfellows um, that you have acquired in this fight. Because if you think back a year from now, would you have ever imagined yourself allied with Jeb Bush 
in an attempt to save the course of democracy in this country? Well, I wouldn't use the word, you know, allyship. But, uh, you know, I do think that um, coalitions and alliances are really important. I mean, a year ago, I probably wouldn't have thought that I'd sit down on your on your podcast and talk to you. But I think that in order to move the country forward, we have to acknowledge not based on party lines, but based on right versus wrong. And that, you know, it's not it's not about the D or the R next to our names. It's it's about humanity. <laughs> and and the only way that we are going to be able to uh, get out of these crises that we are in right now or these crises that we are in right now is to, uh, you know, to figure out where those alliances are and to use them, because I, I really feel that lives depend on on bipartisan cooperation at this point. And so, uh yeah, we've got to we've got to have these these conversations with people who, uh, you know, like Joe Walsh, I consider someone that I, I trust enough to have been able. He has been very upfront with me. I've had him on my podcast and he said, you know, I, I feel somewhat responsible for for Trump. And, you know, I think it's very important for us to move to be able to move forward together as a country. But also I feel like. Uh, you know, reconciliation work, which is kind of what I feel like everyone is doing who has stood by and watched this man um, take down this country in the last four years. I feel like everyone's doing some sort of reconciliation work. Um, and I think it's important to say that that is not about blind forgiveness um, at the expense of people's pain, because a lot of people... Um, He's caused a lot of pain, uh, not only, you know, in, in people's lives uh, personally um, and, and with his response to to COVID, but also, you know, groups of 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 people um, uh, with the race baiting and the fear mongering and the immigration policy and uh, separating children. So so we can't do this work and assume that we are you know, forgiving each other at the expense of someone's pain. Um, but I think reconciliation work is important to to move the country forward and to be able to to set forth policy that is going to um, help American families, which is what this all should be about. All of politics should be about making people's lives better and easier and more fulfilled and creating opportunity. And somehow along the way um, that has gotten completely lost. And so, um, you know, it's, it's heartbreaking, especially when you, when you think about that there are um, 50 million people right now that are food insecure, which I don't know why they use terms like food insecure, it's really that they're starving. They don't have enough food to eat in this country. That's 14 million children, 5.5 million senior citizens. And what are we doing? We're, we're, we're trying to overturn the will of the people. We're not passing relief, COVID relief bills so that people can get some relief. I mean, it's real. Can I curse on the show? Of it's really bullshit. Can. 
okay, yeah, it's bullshit and it's hurtful. And I don't know how we come out of it if we don't have hard conversations and try to move forward together. You know, like Walsh, I too feel responsible for Donald Trump's rise to power. Probably why you didn't care for me. It's actually, I hate to say it, but you probably didn't care for me. It was longer than a year ago because a year ago I was sitting in FCI Otisville prison with my buddy Tony Meatballs and a half a dozen other really super great guys, by the way. I mean, it's all white collar. It's not like what you saw on Oz or anything like that. But the second half, when they remanded us to the other side for the um, pandemic uh, and put us for 51 days in solitary confinement, that's, um, that was a real killer. But I do say that mm -hmm. I feel responsible as well because what I did is I played the Donald Trump game. I continued to foster things about him that I knew were lies, that Donald Trump is an empathetic person, that he's a decent human being, that he cares for everybody. And I'm going to tell did you- Did you believe that at the time? No, but I'm going to tell you why I said it. Because I believe that somewhere deep and deep inside of that big fat fucking gut of his, that there was an empathetic person, that he would actually rise to the office of the presidency as opposed to denigrate the office. But what made you think that he had that in him to do that? Because every now and then I would see traces of it where he would do something that was positive. Now, of course, there was always a bigger positive for him. But I did see those traces, and I believed that being the president of the United States, he would elevate his flawed character, his fragile ego, right, to the position as president of the United States. But instead, he denigrated the fucking office with his fat ass and his stupidity, his ignorance and his arrogance each and every day. And I kind of had enough with it in Helsinki when he decided to have a conversation with Putin that no one was allowed to sit in on. That, of course, made me nervous. When I saw what he did to the San Salvadorian refugees, it was reminiscent of things that I had heard and stories that I had heard from my father and my aunts and at the time my grandma mm. when she was still alive, mm. when they were in the concentration camps in Poland, right? And then the internment camps thereafter. So these sights and the sounds of the children crying and children being ripped away from their mothers and never going to be reunited with their families and listening to the bullshit that they were trying to constantly sow that these are not their children, that coyotes are taking them. And then the worst is to hear the same shit coming out of Melania's mouth is when I really sort of had enough. But it was really the kick in my groin that went with Trump throwing me under the bus to be the scapegoat for his dirty deeds and then watching the sadness and the pain that my family was going through as he did all of his dirty deeds and the way he threw me under the bus without even letting me know, it really took away my, my statement that I said to Emily Jane Fox um, that I would take a bullet for him. I would have. But not if he's the one, put, you know, pulling the trigger. I just couldn't do it anymore. You know, there are not good people on both sides. 
You don't sit and have conversations with adversaries, right, that puts the national security of this country into jeopardy and on and on and on. It's super hard for me. And and thank you for being so honest. And thank you for having me on your podcast. But it's super hard for me because what you're saying is you you knew the hurt that he was doing, but it wasn't until he did it to you that you had enough. And that's that's so it's so hard for me. It's so hard for me to hear as someone that has, you know, for 30 years fought for, um, you know, a, a more a more just world and a more fair, fair country. And and so, you know, I, and, and I can hear the anger that you still have towards him. But I, I, I hope it's anger for, um, you know, the race baiting and the fear mongering and and the xenophobia and the misogyny and the sexism and the homophobia, the Islamophobia, the Yes. And not just and not just what he has done to you, but what he has done to the fabric of of everything that we consider uh, that we strive for in this country. And so. And and I'm wondering, like, do you guys have do you like you and Joe, do you get do you get together and have like conversations about because that is the work that you need to to do, I think, is is you need to get together with other people who created this and 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 try to figure out how how you come together to 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 do this reconciliation work. Because it again, it's not like I, I can, I can look at you and say you and I can do good things um, in in progressing the country forward, um, and I think that that's important. And I think that it's an important uh, precedent to set, right? That someone who could uh, have been so close to Trump um, that I could have a conversation, and I, I think it means that no one is is untouchable right that that if you reach out and you allow people in that that a change of mind is possible and that we are not all so fossilized and 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 calcified in how we how we believe and how we think and i think that has been the biggest reward in my in my in my alliance with joe walsh is that like like you see him doing the work and I, I see you doing the work as well. And I'm wondering, like, is this do you feel like this what you're doing now is is making amends or or do you feel like. Do you feel like you're um, uh, trying to um, reestablish who you are and your humanity or do you feel like um you know, that you that you're ready to to really put in the work and make the difference for other people's lives to, to tackle the first part. It's actually all three. I owe the country to make amends. And I talk about that in my book, Disloyal. I owe it to my wife and to my children to make amends. But there is a terrible misunderstanding or mischaracterization mischaracterization of me. I helped so many people in my life, my life at the Trump organization and working for Donald is very different than my life the second that I walked out. I helped 
to put 1,100 children through school who were unable to afford the education, a private school education in New York City. And they're all thriving. And I still speak to many of them. And when I see them sometimes in the street, you know, I get tremendous hugs from these young, aspiring, and some doing incredibly well. I helped, you know, organizations in the Bronx um, where they had run out of money for, you know, basketball tournaments. I helped in order to raise millions of dollars for sick children with, um, you know, different cancer organizations like St. Jude's. So I've always helped people, whether I've known you for 40 years or 40 minutes. I was always the guy people came to. But going to Trump for a second, it's not it's not that I allowed him or that I lied on his behalf. You have to remember, Donald Trump is a small microcosm of the New York real estate industry. We never expected that he was going to win the election, let alone become the Republican nominee. We never expected that. And when I would say that he's a decent human being, that he's a good person, he's empathetic, that he's not a racist, my hope was also that I was going to be like a painter and I was going to take a really ugly painting, whitewash the shit out of it, and paint something beautiful because I didn't want people to see him for who he really was. Now, then all of a sudden, I got hit by a tidal wave between the raid on my home, the hotel. I mean, the fact that the FBI, I was never in Prague. So why was I even under suspicion? Why? Because I worked for Trump? Because I was a hard-elbowed lawyer that, you know, stiffed a lot of contractors on his behalf? Welcome to New York real estate, right? That there were two young ladies that he had affairs with on his wife prior to my even employment at the Trump organization that I did NDAs. I mean, you know all about this growing up in that ugly world of Hollywood with the Harvey Weinstein, the powerhouses of the world, right? So I didn't see what I was doing as this really evil, evil thing. But then the more he started to speak out, Right Later on, especially once he was in the White House, that's when his words really mattered. They didn't matter when he was at the Trump Organization. The fact that he was a racist or a bigot, that didn't exist in my home. It wasn't allowed in my home as a child. It's not allowed in my home right? You know, as an adult with children and, and so on. So I put all of his misgivings aside, and that was my mistake, that I allowed my moral compass to go down to his level, I was completely intoxicated with the celebrity status of Donald Trump. Not the financials. I was financially set early on in my life. I got very lucky. But it was really the celebrity status. And I think you could probably understand that. You know, you see how people react towards celebrities, right? Whether it's in a restaurant, on the street. And it was intoxicating. The deals to me were intoxicating. And like I said, I lost my moral compass, and I have spent every second since I have been released from Otisville doing what I needed to do to ensure that he did not win another four years. Because the truth is, when I used to sit with him in the office and we talked about some of the things that he would do for this country, knowing that he's a flawed character, what he was supposed to do it's not issue a Muslim ban. I have hundreds of friends who are Muslim, 
right? The fact that they would not be allowed or their family would not be allowed to come to this country, it insulted my, my soul. But what I wanted from him was an infrastructure bill, something that would put every American to work and not for low wages, but for big money. And that's how the country was supposed to thrive. It was all based upon infrastructure, but he can't help himself because his true racist nature came out. And that's when I turned around and said, I had enough. I mean, you know, aligning himself with, with Stephen Miller and Steve Bannon though, like wasn't that a, a red flag or were you just not, you just didn't know about about their their white supremacy, you know, leanings? Nobody knew about it. And honestly, I was never part of Everybody the Everybody knew about it. No, not from the beginning. Steve Miller wasn't there until the until towards the very end, once he became the nominee. I feel like Steve Bannon, everybody was completely aware of what a train wreck he was. Um, but, I, you know, I think... I think that there were you know, moments, you know, leading up to 2016. And by the way, I'm all for infrastructure. And that is, we have, we have bipartisan, um, you know, support for an infrastructure bill. And we need it so desperately in this country when, uh, you know, you look at um, uh, how some of the, the, the pipes that, that bring our, our water to us, to our homes are over a hundred years old. Uh, and leaching lead into communities and um, and infrastructure does create jobs. And it, again, it does have bipartisan support and we need it so desperately. But, you know, I, I don't remember ever talking about infrastructure, but maybe that's just because we all lived in our echo chambers. Right. And and maybe that's what you wanted to hear. And for me, all I was hearing was about, you know, his uh, white supremacy leanings and how he was going to put forth a very hurtful immigration po policy uh, with, with you know, masterminds of, of that issue um, who are white supremacists. Uh, but I don't remember him ever talking about that, like being one of the promises that he was. He didn't, he didn't even really make any promises. I don't even. That's a big other than to build the wall. But I will remind you. Right. When Donald Trump went to the Arab Emirates and he got on television and he stated, I just got a commitment from the Gulf Coast countries for two hundred and fifty billion dollars that they're going to be investing in the infrastructure of the United States. And then he went to China and he got allegedly 250 billion of commitment. And then again in Japan with the 250 billion. He talked a lot about infrastructure, but you're right. We live in our own little eco chambers. We hear what we want because Captain Chaos created such insanity every single day that he woke up with his fat little fingers with that Twitter, right? If he would have listened to me and then just done infrastructure over the course of four years, he would have been untouchable. Isn't that scary? Yes, terrifying. But, you know, he's still basically untouchable and not being held accountable by, you know, his party. They are still. And why do you why do you think that is? Like, why do you think people like Ted Cruz and this this fool Matt Gates and all of these 
Trump cronies? Why, why, why aren't they holding him accountable? Do you think that um, they have dirt on on them? Do you think that there is some sort of uh, arrangement of uh, I don't know, like what? Why? Where's where are the adults? Where are they? They're out to lunch because they know that right now Donald Trump's favorability is somewhere in the neighborhood of 35 to 40 percent. I mean, that's a scary freaking number, right? And they're concerned that one negative tweet from our idiot in chief, and that's the end of their power because they're all doing it for power. And they don't really care right. about their morals. They don't care about right. the country. They care about staying in power. I do just want to jump onto something else. The FDA gave final authorization today for the COVID vaccination that's developed yeah. by Pfizer. Obviously, this is welcome news for all of us. But we face a well-organized anti-vaccination foe in getting people to take the vaccine, as well as the fact that there are millions of people who won't be able to afford it once it's even made available. Now, I understand that you're a signatory to the people's vaccine movement, which aims to give out the vaccine for free, like what they're doing in Canada. Walk me through how this would help in distributing the vaccine to the most vulnerable in our society. And finally, how do you deal with the anti-vaxxers and those who reject science and refuse to take the vaccine at all? Yeah, I mean, the anti-vaxxers are definitely a, a major issue that we are going to have to deal with because, um, you know, herd immunity, quote unquote, herd immunity, um, first of all, is a is a is a false reality. I, I don't think that we are going to be able to achieve that. And we certainly will not be able to achieve it if there are only, you know, I think the number is 60% of Americans um, are saying that they would actually take the vaccination. So we're going to need to, to real, and especially because of the war on science that has gone on now, we're going to really need to uh, educate and empower the American people to, to be okay with taking this vaccination. Now, when I talk about the people's vaccine, I, I don't, I don't want it to be perceived as um, only people in this country, right? Because this virus knows no arbitrary lines or no boundaries or no lines in the sand. And um, we, there is no way we will all be healthy unless we all have access to this vaccination. And the problem is, is that, you know, the Pfizer and the Moderna uh, vaccination, their, their vaccinations are both incredibly expensive. Um, there is, you know, uh, ways in which they need to be kept um, as far as refrigeration. Um, as a UNICEF ambassador for the last 30 years or 20 years, I am... Um, I know how hard it is to get vaccines into the most vulnerable places throughout the world. And mind you, I'm not just talking about the vulnerable places in our country where there are plenty. I'm talking about places, um, you know, where people live on less than a dollar a day. Um, and make no mistake, if we don't get this vaccine to the people who live in the most remote remote areas 
in the world and we don't make this affordable for those people and we don't make it so that, you know, UNICEF can give it out with with other vaccinations um, or Oxfam can, you know, figure out how to get it to people who live in villages. We're not going to be safe from this thing. And so I believe that this vaccine should not just be free to the people in this country, which Biden has repeatedly said that he is going to make sure the vaccine is free to the American people. I want it to be free for everyone. I don't think that this should just be that people who are just or countries who are just wealthy enough to buy stockpiles in this vaccine should be the ones who have access to it. Doesn't every single person in the entire world deserve access to a vaccine of a pandemic, just like we make the the polio vaccination available, just like we make the the malaria pills and nets available to to people in developing nations? So so to me, this is this is we've got to stop looking at this as just an issue in our country, even though we have handled this so, so poorly. Uh, here. Uh, but we need to look at this as a global plant pandemic. And that's why Trump getting out of the World, he- World Health Organization was so incredibly da- or is so incredibly dangerous because for whatever uh, their their uh, their faults are, and, and I'm sure there are many, um, there is also incredible access to to the world's people and they already have the infrastructure to get people vaccinated throughout throughout the world. Um, so I think it's it's very good. It is, uh, you know, obviously taxpayer dollars have paid for the research. Um, so I'm I'm seeing this as being a, a global, you know, public good, freely and fairly available to everyone. Prioritizing. Um, you know, the most vulnerable, not only here, but around the world. Yeah, well, you have to remember something, that Trump only looks at the negatives, right, unless it's going to benefit him. Right. And that's one of the reasons why he could not get out of his own shadow when it came to this pandemic, that we're losing more people each and every day now than we lost in that tragic September 11th date. I mean, it is beyond disgraceful. He's disgraceful, not just as a president, but as a human being. But it's, Michael, it's not just him. And yeah, I agree, but it's not just him. You know, according to Oxfam, um, other rich nations besides just the U.S. are already hoarding, hoarding like more than it's some, it's some crazy number, like half the vaccines to be developed, uh, you know, by companies uh, with the five leading vaccine candidates. Um, so that's crazy because the, the the United States only has like four percent of the the world's population, and and we've already you know monopolized fifty percent of the Pfizer uh, supply, which I mean to protect everyone, everyone, all these corporations need to make this vaccine technology to enable billions of doses, billions of doses to be made as soon as possible. Um, And it can't be crazy expensive. It's got to be the lowest possible price. And this is where we should be holding our pharmaceutical companies, uh, you know, 
here's here's the thing. This is what I've been thinking about with this vaccine. Um, and, and work with me here, because this is still like a, a seed of a thought, right? So, and when you look at what's going on with uh, Senator Loeffler in Georgia, right, and how um, she allegedly sold off stock when she found out about the pandemic. I don't understand why our elected officials are allowed to continue to um, control their, their, their assets. Everything should be put in a blind trust, just like, you know, it is for a president. Because when you have someone that has invested in pharmaceuticals, how do we know that they are going to pass laws or vote for laws that are going to reduce prescription prices or that are going to reduce the price of a vaccination? So why we make presidents put their their investments and their stocks into a blind trust and not senators and congresspeople means everyone's for sale. Everyone is for sale. Well, I do believe that they did change that rule several years ago. uh, And you've seen quite a few congressmen. uh, I don't know about senators, but I, I have seen a few congressmen go to jail as a result of trading stocks based upon insider information. Right, but that's illegal anyway, right? So that's illegal anyway. Yes, but it, insider it, trading. Used, it used to not be illegal for congressmen and for senators. Really? Yes, they changed that rule several years ago. But on December 9th, you wrote something which was incredibly powerful on Twitter. And you wrote, sometimes the only way out is in. And the most painful moments in my life broke me open. We are broken open as a nation right now. Hundreds of thousands of lives lost. People behind prison walls with no protection or life-saving treatments. 50 million people are starving. Can you discuss with me what you mean by the only way out is in? And then describe again for me and my listeners what those moments were that broke you open to change. Mm. I love that question. Um, So, you know, in my life, which has not always been uh, easy, you know, obviously being a a child actor, child star uh, comes with a lot of challenges. Um, And my parents are incredible and really did the best they could. They've been married for over 50 years. We have a very close family. And and really, I had the the best of circumstances, and I was still fucked up, right? So you can imagine what child actors who who didn't have that kind of stability, how fucked up they are. Um, But I I put on a good face for for a lot of my adult life and that... um, that I was okay and I was always going to be okay and I was strong and I got through it and I'm, I'm a better person for it. And, you know, and then slowly but surely, and I think that anyone who has dealt with any sort of um, trauma, and this also goes for sexual trauma, which I've experienced sadly numerous times, um, you know, you sort of tuck those things away inside of your being, you tuck that hurt away inside of your being, Um, and then there just came a point where my anxiety got so bad. I have anxiety disorder. Um, 
and and there was the only way out of my pain was to go in um and you know i have felt in my life numerous times broken open to the extent that like not only do you know that your heart is broken but you know what's in that break and what you need to mend um to move forward and i feel like this um not that it was wasn't already broken but now it is broken open where the injustices that we see um where the inequity and inequalities um that we face as a nation are uh blatantly apparent and um the only way out is to really acknowledge it analyze it and then start start doing the hard work of healing as a nation and um you know there have been it's it's been it's been it's been an interesting journey for me because so much of my personal growth has happened with social movements that I have influenced before I've dealt with my own shit. I don't know if that makes sense, but after I... It makes perfect sense to me because I know what it feels like to be broken. So I'll just, yeah, I'll just explain it a little bit. Like, so... After I I sent out the Me Too tweet that that helped reignite um, the incredible work that Tarana Burke does um, in in um, in really healing survivors of sexual trauma, um, I I sent out that tweet as a response to what was going on in my industry with with Harvey Weinstein, and I had not dealt with my own sexual trauma at all. I mean, I took that so deep that I was like, it's not that I didn't know it was there or that it happened to me. It was that I actually had convinced myself that I I, I had already dealt with that. And what wound up happening after I sent that tweet, which was, you know, a pretty powerful moment globally, was that women were and men were telling me of their of their own personal sexual trauma and what that did was triggered my memories so really as the country was shifting in this place of um exposing uh sexual harassment and assault and sort of and 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 restructuring um how we looked at uh, those dynamics in the workplace and how we weren't going to take it anymore and we weren't going to whisper in the corners anymore. It was happening inside of me at the same time. And so, um, so that was one moment that I was broken open. And then, you know, the child actor part, um, I was, I was, as a UNICEF ambassador, I've traveled the world um, and seen some really fucking horrible things. Like I've seen humanity at its absolute worst and its best. But I didn't realize my own childhood um, pain until I, I I lived in South Africa for three months and I, I, I traveled to Angola uh, only two years after the peace treaty was signed. So they had absolutely no infrastructure. It was the longest civil war in the history of the world. 
And um, I wa- I watched a a child uh, die of of starvation in her mom's arms, and it was like a nine year old, um, and the mother was so disassociated that she had at this point finally gotten to the nutrition center after like walking for miles and miles with this nine-year-old on her back. And it's just like shit that is so part of my being and working with children that are so, um, that it's just, it's so heartbreaking to see their situation, their circumstances made me look into my own childhood and not that, I mean, I was obviously incredibly blessed compared to what I've seen, but I needed to heal a little girl inside of me. And I didn't realize it until the social work that I had, had been doing for children globally. So, so it's interesting how this, this work that I do has, um, has forced uh, an inner healing within me because you can't run away from it. And the only way out is in. And I think that's where we are right now in this country. I think that we have broken open and it's time now that we dissect everything um, that ails us so that we can heal and move on. And we're going to have to do it together because I don't know how we, we do it any other way. Well, Alyssa, I think that you're a truly remarkable human being. And I think the empathy that you have for so many people, you know, um, when I saw the Me Too movement going on, remember, I married 26 years. I have a 25-year-old daughter. Um, When all of the allegations started coming out against Trump, 18 women, what bothered me the most about it, and I said it to him, stop attacking them. It's wrong. Let them say what they want. It's their right, right? And he goes, they're all lies. I said, That's, that, the truth will always come out, right? That's the one thing that will always come out is the truth. But now you have like E. Jean Carroll, you have Amy Doris, Jill Harth, Jessica Leeds, you have that Kristen Anderson. There's 18 of these women, right? Those that are telling the truth, the truth will prevail, And those that are lying will also be exposed. But let them have their moment to say, well, no, we need to fight them and we need to take them apart. And I would have nothing to do with that, right? Nothing, despite what, you know, the media wanted to portray me as uh, and so on. And I get a lot of these on Twitter and social media attacking me, you know, for this. But your work with the Me Too movement was the first time in a long time that, you know, I saw your name as somebody that is just so active in all of these various different political affiliations. And, you know, if I was there, I would reach out and pat you on the back because you do so much good. And people don't realize you're so much more than just a a child actor or an actress now and so on. You're really just a wonderful, you know, a, a wonderful human being. And sadly, you enough people probably don't tell you that but thank you i'm going to take the moment it. on my podcast and make sure all my listeners know that too i appreciate it you know as we're talking about this because you recently tweeted we will need coalitions to mend this country and bridge the divide 
It's not about political affiliations. We need to come together to address the inequities uh, and the inequalities to reach um, America that we know is possible. The America that we've been dreaming of. When you speak of coalitions and bridging the divide, are you hoping to bridge the divide between red and blue and MAGA and SANE? Or is this more about the divisions within the Democratic Party between the center and, for example, like the AOC wing of the party? Because I don't see any way to bridge the divide with Trump voters when they won't even accept the basic facts or they don't acknowledge science. You know, have you reasoned with any individual who rejects all reason? And how do you do it? I, well, first of all, I don't think you you don't try to do it because you don't know how to do it. Right. I think we have to at least try to to reach out because, you know, there are are many people that, uh, you know, and I have people in my family that voted for him. Um, good people that I know. But the the, the difference is and I want to make this very clear. I don't think that there is any um, reaching white supremacists or any, uh, you know, bad, bad people. I don't I don't want to reach. I don't want to build coalitions with those people. But there is a certain percentage of this country that is going to vote for a Republican simply because they have that R next to their names. Um, or simply for financial reasons, or simply because they were raised in a Republican household. And those sensible Republicans and and moderates, um, I I think, you know, it is worth acknowledging um, and trying to to reach them and figure out a way uh, forward past this this time now it is not my place to um reconcile with anyone that has uh caused harm to a certain group of of people um but i know for me and my and the way in which i think i have to use my platform is to at least try to set the example that it's possible um and I do think it is it is the spectrum, but stopping at you know the the white supremacist part of the Republican Party. Um, I, I I will also say that I don't believe that there is that big of a divide in the left as the right wants us to believe. I think that. Um, uh, we are a really big, diverse uh, uh, group. Democrats are really big and diverse, and we have um, uh, different thoughts on how to get to different to different places. But we all believe in the same thing. So, so it's not. I don't think that there is that big of a divide um, between the left, at least as not as big as the right would make you make you think. And I would also say that that it is important that we're all not like minded um, on one side of, of the party, as long as we're all fighting for, you know, to give American families what they need to to live happy, successful lives filled with uh, fulfillment and opportunity. 
and equal access to those things. You know, so so I think AOC is a is a, a rising star in the party. I think she's brilliant. I think she's really smart. And much like we need activists to continue to fight for progress, we need people in our party to also fight for progress. And I think progress, you know, if we're looking at progressive versus moderates, we, you know, we all want progress. And I feel like the the GOP, you know, the extreme right does not want progress. They want regress. They want, they want to go back to this, you know, to this very white male dominated uh, society, which doesn't exist anymore. It just doesn't. There is a changing demographic in this country that white white men are having a real t- hard time looking at that. And I think that's what a lot of the, the political divide is about. Okay. Well, listen, Alyssa, as we're winding down the hour, I have one last observation or question that I would love for you to answer. You yes. posted a video of Rudy Witness, Melissa Carone, putting these people on television is the best way to show the farce of this entire endeavor by Trump and his minions. Mm. Talk to Mm. me about this and what you thought when you first saw her testimony. So we could all read the article about that that moment, but to actually see the video and to see the the moment where, (laughs) where Rudy, like, it was too much for even Rudy, like where he reached over and he was like, okay, you know, tone it down. It really paints the picture in such in such a, a way where it is undeniable. And, you know, I think about often like how people are getting information nowadays and how it is so much um, coming into our homes in such a more personal way because we can digest the information as it comes in. And basically we're getting all this from our computers, which to me is the most like personal, private thing. It's there. It has all of our secrets, our computers. So when we're looking at this chaos, right. And we're, and we're, there's, it is so undeniably um, uh, ridiculous. And, but I, and I don't know if you have a thought on this, but I also, I sort of go back and forth between is showing those types of videos normalizing it? Like, are you sort of saying like, look how ridiculous this is and um, people are going to retweet it. And does that then normalize the behavior or people really just looking at it and going, that's absurd because I battle with that a lot. I battle with that, with every ridiculous thing that Trump says that, that people post. And I'm like, why do we keep you know, we got Trump because we talked about Trump. Talking about Trump got us Trump. Like, so let's cut it off. Like, let's cut off the oxygen there. And so part of me is always like, uh, am I, am I, am I causing more trouble by normalizing this if I post that? But then there's just shit where I'm like, oh no, I, I have to post this. Like the, like that. But but I, I feel like it's the same thing with like Ted Cruz right now, who everything that comes out of his mouth is fucking ridiculous. And people post it on social media like, isn't this ridiculous? And we're all giving we're handing over our platforms to, you know, making his his craziness even even more normalized and is he really using us to then turn around and run in 2024 with his 
with the Trump base. Like, like I go through all of this, my mind just, <laughs> I'm, I'm always like, how much, how much of this should I be sharing with people and how much um, should I just not? Cause you know, you look at it and you go, if I share this right now, that's almost 4 million people that are going to see this, that probably might not have seen it before. Well, you mean so when you're I perpetuating the nonsense, you know, for example, yeah, I couldn't, yeah, I could and not normalizing help myself, it. Right. I could not I help myself when the shit was rolling down uh, Rudy's face from his hair dye or his oh farting at the hearing. I, I mean, or the, the Four Seasons <laughs> landscape. You just can't make this shit up. It's I mean, almost, you can't write it. You can't. You can't write it. You can't. Lorne, I mean, Lorne Michaels is probably angry that he, you know, that they cannot make this stuff up, that this is actually reality. Do you know, the land, the landscaping thing, someone had told me about it. I had, I don't know what I was doing that day, but I was not in front of the computer. Someone had told me about it and I thought that they were fucking with me. I, I was like, what are you talking about? Like it, it made no sense to me whatsoever. And then when I got home and I, and I saw the video, I was, this is, this is unbelievable. In front of a morgue, there, in front of a sex shop, you know, in the middle of a of a and that a there are still lot. there are still people buying into this. Yeah, yep. And don't worry, Donald Trump knows how to make them buy in at four ninety nine a month when he does his Trump News Network. Rest assured. But you know, one thing, Alyssa, that really impresses me about you is you're involved in so many movements. I mean, and you have been for a long, long time. One more worthy than the next or all of them cumulatively equally worthy. I can't say one is more than the other. That just each and every one impresses me, you know, including like, I understand that you're part of this Save the Senate Festival, the, the lineup for it that's taking place on December 18th. I don't really know what that's all about. So I would really love for you to describe for me and my listeners what this is all about, how they can watch, how they can help and how they can donate. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so as I hope all your listeners know that, um, you know, we have a big runoff coming up in Georgia uh, in just a few weeks. And actually, December 14th, people in Georgia can start voting for the two Senate seats that are up for grabs, um, which uh, I hope they'll be voting for John Ossoff and Reverend Raphael Warnock. Um, and basically we will be, uh, uh, raising money with a lot of incredible, incredible, um, uh, musicians, uh, for those Senate races. Um, and my friend Ben Lee, who is a brilliant Australian musician, put together this awesome online music festival with people like Ani DeFranco and Amanda Palmer. And, um, you know, I mean, the list just goes on and on and on and on and on. And, uh, we're going to be raising money for Fair Fight, um, which is, uh, which is, uh, Stacey Abrams organization. Um, and so tickets are at noonchorus.com. Um, and I hope people will, uh, will, will come. I think it's going to be a really, really special, special night. I mean, Rufus, I'm looking at the, the list right now. Rufus Wainwright, uh, Tom Morello, Jim James, um, really everybody who is, uh, just incredible, um, not only musicians, but um, thinkers and, and, and 
conversation starters. So yes, I'm very excited to be a part of that. And Sarah Silverman and Margaret Cho and uh, a whole bunch of people. And it's December 18th, which is the day before my birthday um, at, at 6 p.m. Eastern. And again, you could get tickets at noonchorus.com. Oh, well, I'll be plugging that a lot uh, up until the 18th. But Alyssa Milano, listen, I just want to say I've been a fan of yours since I was you know, young watching you on Who's the Boss and then Charmed. and But really, the impressive thing about you is your empathy, your heart, and the fact that you have the platforms to effectuate good and that you're actually doing it. You know, many people have platforms. I appreciate that. Thank but they you. don't actually yeah. do anything. So I thank you for everything that you're doing. Well, thank you for using your platform. Thank you for using your platform. And please keep having the tough conversations. They're worth it. And if you need any help from me on anything, uh, I was once known as the fixer. You call me. <laughs> I will call you. Thank Thanks. you so much. Thanks, God Alyssa. bless you, Michael. The same to you. Donald Trump will continue to aggressively prosecute this election and claims of voter fraud until the day that he dies, now that he's found something that plays with his MAGA base. Like any skilled con artist, you go with what works. And baby, election fraud works. Trump's election defense fund is raking in hundreds of millions of dollars. He doesn't care if it's corrosive to democracy or dangerous. Donald Trump only cares about Donald Trump. The reality producer inside him knows that this election fraud narrative allows him to avoid cancellation. What's truly frightening in all of this is that he remains more emboldened than ever. The real battle took place not in the courts or Congress, but in the minds of millions of MAGA voters. And as long as a majority of them continue to believe that the election was stolen, Trump can wield his devoted base like a bludgeon at whomever he believes has wronged him. It also allows him to return to Magistan with a presumed mandate from the base to continue to fight this terrible fraud and corruption. It also gives him a platform and a base for which to build his 2024 candidacy and mount a comeback, no matter how full of shit it actually is. If it weren't so incredibly destructive, one would almost marvel at the audacity of what Trump has accomplished. In five weeks, Trump has wreaked complete havoc on our democratic norms with devastating effect. Sure, the courts ultimately proved to be a bulwark against his tyranny, unanimously upholding the rule of law, but it didn't stop him from putting a cloud of stink around the entire process and cause millions to cast doubt. He has weakened our trust and belief in our most sacred of rights. These are truly breathtaking, seditious acts that he did almost single-handedly with his Twitter account. God help us all, and thanks for listening. Maya Culpa is brought to you by LSJ Media and Audio Up in association with Midas Touch and it's hosted by me, Michael Cohen, produced by Audio Up by Jimmy Jelnick and executive producer Jared Gustav, and it's edited by Tyler Dawson. Please stay tuned as we focus on the changing political moment and this unprecedented transfer of power. I'll be with you every step of the way. Maya Culpa, nothing but the truth. Yeah.